Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Can I say it again? Romans 8 again. We're marching through the, now the last paragraph of this epic chapter. In fact, what most would call the greatest chapter in the Bible. And if you don't give it that designation, you certainly would count it, I'm trusting, among your favorite. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 36 beginning this morning, and it'll take us a little bit longer than that to get through it. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For the last few weeks, we have been looking intently into the glory of God's providence and sovereignty in the Salvation Act. The fact that he is responsible for salvation from eternity past to eternity future of those who would believe. As we've noted, three of the most controversial doctrines in the Bible are all mentioned within five verses here in Paul's eighth chapter of Romans. God's foreknowledge, predestination, and election, all within five verses. And amazingly, as we've noted, in each occurrence, the terms are used without a footnote, without any explanation, without any writer, without any appendix. They're just used. And they're used because Paul thinks if you know the definition of these words, you don't need lots of explanation. Now, he's going to come back and illustrate it and drive it home in chapter 9. But it's amazing to me that he just simply uses these terms without further explanation. He says, God foreknew those he loved, which is different than foresight. Foresight looks and sees what would happen and then responds appropriately. That's not foresight here, it's foreknowledge. He foreknew and foreordained. Predestined, predetermined the destination of someone and God's elect. God elected some and didn't elect all. As controversial as these are, Paul just mentions them. Doesn't give us a lot of explanation. And when he does give us an explanation in chapter nine, and we begin to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, I'm not sure that's fair. He says, who are you to question God? And I think it's important for us to remember as we walk through this, the end of this chapter and into the next, that we just need to take God at his word and let him say what he's saying. It seems to me if God intended for us to have a different definition or a different explanation for what these terms are easily defined as, he would have not provided Paul, he would have provided Paul with the ink to do so. Or he might have said, I know that Paul is saying this, but that's not what he really means. Let me explain to you what he really means or what I really mean. Instead, Paul just employs these terms. 
As you survey the responses to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation today, you're going to find varied responses. You're going to find some who reject it outright. I don't believe that that's what that means, so I'm not going to receive that God is sovereign in salvation from eternity past to eternity future. I'm going to reject it. You have others who redefine all those terms and say, yes, I know it says that, but, and we talked about the importance of recognizing that in our hermeneutical scheme. If we say God's word says X, but Y, we're in trouble. Then you have people on the other side who overemphasize the doctrine. This just seems to be all they preach on, all they care about. Even those who aggressively taunt people with this doctrine, called the hyper-Calvinists. I guess my question is, what's your response to what we studied? That God is in absolute sovereign control, and that's a joyful uh, revelation to us as believers. He is in absolute sovereign control from eternity past in foreknowledge and predestination to eternity future in glorification. How do you respond to that? In the passage before us, we find what the Apostle Paul's response was under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. He didn't just respond. He's responding with God's breath actually coming through him and his pen. Now, as we come to this passage, again, we have to employ what is, I think, the most important hermeneutical tool we have in our toolbox. That is context, context, context. Let me give you an example. Listen to this sentence very closely. My friend is dead wrong about the time of the picnic. What happens if you stop after the word dead? You have a whole different understanding than if I said, my friend is dead wrong about the time of the picnic. Context matters. And to isolate part of God's word out and to make a, create a doctrine about it or to get a perspective about what we think the author is saying without seeing the full context is as wrong as taking part of that sentence and saying, well, Rick's friend is probably dead. And that will be a sure guide as we kind of unload the treasures that are here at the end of Romans 8. Now, as we come back to this final paragraph, this final section of Romans 8, we, we come up against a series of questions. You may have heard them as I read the text. There are, in a sense, questions that are unanswerable. You can dive into this as deep as you want, but you're not going to come out with the answers that the world would come out with. In a sense, they're rhetorical. He's asking them with implied answers that we should supply. And if you're good at counting, and I know you are, you'll see that there are seven questions. Just look at the question marks. There are seven clear questions that Paul asks. But if you look at the questions uh, one by one, you'll notice that there are really five questions that he's asking, two of which serve the other question. This first one actually answers part of the first question and gives a little uh, uh, further explanation of what the question is. So when we work through this, this uh, outline together, I know there's seven questions, but we're going to have five points that we're going to answer. Let's look at it together. As we look at the, this week and in the coming weeks, we're going to answer these questions. Five questions to answer for a, for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. Five questions to answer for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. These are questions that if you answer, you'll find assurance. And if you don't answer, you're likely to be those who would question your salvation, not have victory in sin, not have um, the impotence to be involved in church, tending to lean on other people, even finding your own understanding as your intuitive criteria for how you evaluate your faith. Five questions to answer for a Christian's 
unquestioned assurance. And as he comes to the end of this, this passage, he says, it's okay. Remember what we studied last time. Because he's, he's organized eternity from beginning to end and, say, and saying, this is what I've done, telling us this is what I've done in salvation. It's okay. No matter what happens, it's okay. You can have sure, assurance and peace. Well, he's going to explain that even more in the next passage. The first question to answer for a believer's unquestioned assurance is this. If God is for us, who's against us? If God is for us, who is against us? Now that sounds like I skipped something. That's the further explanation of the first question, which is, what do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? And the answer is, if God is for us, there's the implied answer, then who is against us? We're gonna group that together. What shall we say then to these things? These first two questions are really two parts of the same question. In fact, the second kind of supplies the answer to the first, as I said. Let's break it down. What then shall we say to these things? The first thing we have to figure out is what Paul means by these things. What is he talking about? Now, I want to tell you, this is a prostauta in the Greek, just as regard to the things previous. The question becomes, what is he talking about? And I have to tell you that the, it was almost comical as I read a dozen or so commentaries this week to see what people thought these things are. You have some who say, well, these things goes back and catches all that he said from chapter one all the way up through uh, chapter eight. That's a, a good way to think about it in, in a sense. Others say, no, no, no. It goes back to the doctrine of justification at the end of chapter three and extends through what he's saying now in chapter eight. I can see where that might be the case. Others say, no, no, no. He's talking about all the glories of salvation. Well, okay, maybe so. But let's go back to freshman year, or maybe it was your sophomore year, English class in, uh, in high school, okay? I know those are bad memories, but let me take you back there for a moment. Remember the law of nearest antecedent what that means is if you have a phrase and you want to know what it relates to, it more than likely relates to something close to it. It's just as simple as that. So if Paul is saying, what do we say to these things, I think that the best explanation of that is, is the previous verse. The, what he's just talked about. What am I going to say to these things? So let's go back. What is it? It's God's links in a golden chain of salvation. The fact that a believer is foreknown by God, predestined by God, called by God, justified by God and glorified by God in verses 29 to 30. I think those are the these things he's talking about here in verse 31. We find Paul's response to God's sovereignty and salvation. He, he responds by, by not giving any explanation. He doesn't indicate any doubt. He doesn't reveal any confusion. He doesn't spike the ball like a football in a player's hand in a touch, after he scores a touchdown. Instead, he summarizes what it means that a believer has been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. What does it mean? What is Paul's response to that? Well, if you look at the second part of the question, you find out. That's shorthand for God is for us. If God is at the very beginning before eternity began to choose, and at the very end of glorification to receive, is there any better description than God is for us from beginning to end? It's a summary. And that should have epic, mammoth implications on our thinking and on our living. We know how it ends. Last year, there was a, 
the Super Bowl was on one of our uh, nights that we meet as a church, and uh, I did what every self-respecting pastor did. I put on the, the TiVo or Devo, what is it called? The tape recorder, the thing, you know where it records it? You know, the, anyway, anyway, my kids did that for me. They got it to record the game. We went out with someone after a, a church that night for some, uh, for some dinner, and I was going to go home and watch the game. And I peeked at ESPN, and I knew who won. I had my app open, and I looked, and I knew who won. Well, I got home, popped some popcorn, and sat down to watch that game. And I want to tell you, it was unlike watching any other game. There was no stress. There was no strains. There was no despair. I, I knew how it ended. It, it, was, it was really interesting that the, you know, the emotion of overreacting to things that looked like they would be troubling wasn't even there because I knew how the game ended. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Listen, in eternity past, he foreknew and predestined you. We'll find out in just a few verses. He also chose and elected he also called, an efficacious call, an effectual call. Then he justified us by the blood of his son. And that, as we said, is interesting. Paul said, he glorified past tense you. He sees everything from outside of time, the beginning to the end. Paul's summary for that is simple. God is for us. God is for us. R.C. Sproul writes, divine sovereignty is the ultimate source of comfort for the Christian believer. Think about that. Divine sovereignty is the ultimate source of comfort for the Christian believer because it means that God is in control of his destiny. What could be more comforting to the Christian than to know that the outcome of his life is not in the hands of fortuitous circumstances, but is in the hands of a benevolent God? See what he's saying? We know the end of the game. We know how this ends. Sproul goes on to say, Paul is saying that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of a holy, omnipotent, sovereign, and righteous, loving, personal God, and that this is a cause for rejoicing. If for one second there was one molecule running around this universe out of control, out of the sovereignty of God, I would have to surrender to despair. If there's one molecule outside of the control of God's sovereignty, then there is no guarantee whatsoever that the promises of God will, in fact, ever come to pass, end quote. Now, that's true of God's sovereignty over the world, which is a comforting and wonderful doctrine, but nothing like God's sovereignty over a believer's salvation. We studied over and over from every angle in chapter three all the way to the end of chapter eight and into chapter seven into chapter eight that God has justified on the basis of faith and faith alone. Nothing we could do, no effort we could add. We couldn't try harder or be better. He did it. He did it all. If he did it all in our justification because he foreknew and called us and predestined us and we know that he's going to do it in our glorification, then we can say to any circumstance, no matter how bad it is, it's okay. I know how this ends. But I think there's more here too. Paul's coming to the climax of chapter eight here that reaches all the way back to chapter one in a crescendo of the implications of salvation. And here the implication is peace and comfort and trust and hope. Also, look at the principle Paul's teaching us here. There's, I think it's, it's there implicitly and explicitly. 
It's the discipline of theological reflection and consideration. It's, it's asking the question, what should I say to these things? I mean, is that a part of your habit when you, when you read a passage, when you have a quiet time, when you hear a sermon, when you read a book, is to step back and say, hang on, what do I say to this? What's my response? Are you consciously speaking to and preaching to your soul and asking yourself, so what? Paul did. What should we say to these things? God is in charge of my salvation from eternity past to eternity future. So what? What do I say to this thing? How do I respond? He says, well, if God is for us, or the Greek can be, since God is for us, probably a better rendering. Then one more little Greek lesson. Who is against us? Now, it's an interesting translation, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough translation here. It's, it's a very simple workhorse word in the Greek language called tis. Now, tis can be translated either who or what. And the reason we know that, that he's using um, this both for who and what, look down at verse, um, oh, look at verse 35. The same word, tis, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he says, well, tribulation, well, that could be a who. Or distress, that could definitely come from a who. Persecution, yep. Famine, probably not. Nakedness, maybe. Peril, maybe. Sword, Yes. So some of those are who's and some of those are what's. Do you see that? The, the word in the Greek is a workhorse. It, it, the context tells you whether it's who or what. The better way to translate this is who or what could separate us from the love of God. Who or what is against us? And again, this is Paul's response to the doctrine of God's sovereignty in our salvation. God is for us. You know, the question is not if we are on God's side. It's constantly asking that in politics. The question isn't, is God on, are we on God's side? The question is, is God on our side? And this verse says a believer is not only on God's side, he chose to be for the believer. You know, when you know that and you realize that, that changes a lot of things. It changes your perspective. It should change your perspective on anxiety. What are we really worrying about? God is for us. Now, I need to take my own medicine when I can't find my keys or I'm in traffic and I'm gonna be late. God is for us. How about depression? Do you really know how this thing ends? Anger. What are we really upset about in light of God's bringing us home in glorification? Loss, the things that we lose or even the people that we lose. And in this context, persecution. When we sense the persecution of the world, sometimes even from other so-called believers, we can step back and remember God is for us. The point that Paul is making is simple. Since God is for us, then what in the world can happen? What in the world can be a threat? What can be a threat to someone who is on God's side and whose side God is on? That's good news. Remember that the next time you feel like someone's against you? They may be, but we know how it ends. And God will bring us home. We'll have more to say about that when we get into chapter 9 and 10. But let's go on to our second question of the five questions to answer for a Christian.
freely give us all things with Christ? Interesting question. I'm taking it right out of Paul's language. How will God not freely give us all things with Christ? This is verse 32. Now, I want to tell you, having studied this um, for the better part of this week and known it was coming for months and months, there are few texts that I've ever been as intimidated speaking, preaching, talking on than this one. Um, John Piper calls this the summary of the entire gospel. John Murray says it could be a summary of the whole Bible. This is a power-packed verse that's dense with the Father's love for Christ and us. Now let's look at that more specifically. The place we have to begin in order to grasp the density of this verse is with the Father's love for Jesus. He, that is God the Father, as we'll see, verse 32, who, now we're gonna describe something about the Father, did not spare his own son. Stop right there. He didn't spare his own son. What was the Father's relationship like with the Son? Obviously, he was co-equal in the Trinity. Obviously, he was the co-creator. What was their emotional, relational connection? We find out in two places in Matthew at Jesus' baptism and at his uh, transfiguration, something that, that the translation kind of confuses you a little bit, but let me give you a, a kind of a more raw understanding of what, what's being said. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, listen, a voice out of the heavens said, this is the father, this is my beloved son. A better way to translate that is, this is the son whom I love. I love this son. I'm well pleased in him. Similarly, in Matthew 17, at the transfiguration, verse five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is the son I love. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then he says, listen to him. We have to start with the fact that the father's relationship with the son was one of eternal intimacy and love. It's natural to love your children. It's natural to love your sons. I remember very clearly when uh, we brought our first son home, uh, Luke, from the hospital, and we just sat around and stared at him all the time. We were amazed at this gift of God. We actually... I was living in Detroit at the time. And, uh, we actually thought, well, we know some people in Hollywood. We, this is the cutest baby who's ever born. I mean, we should probably, he should probably be on television or movies. Or, I mean, we're sure that he's, you know, and we look back at pictures of him those first few days he came home. and was, um, <laughs> He's outgrown that. Man, that love was incredible. And at that point, I love my other sons equally, but at that point, this was my only Son, this is my boy. And I cannot describe to you the unfathomable love that my wife and I had for our son. I can see on your, some of you, your faces as parents, you understand that. It's just unspeakable. It's ineffable. 
I can't think of anybody, no one, who I would love enough to sacrifice one of my sons for. And we find out from Romans 5 that God sacrificed his son not for people who he appreciated and liked. He did it for wicked, sinner enemies who were against him from their birth. Who, who invents a scheme like this for salvation? Is that not proof that this is a divine work of a divine mind? Who would invent that scheme? That a holy God would send his only son to die for the sins of wicked rebels. Here in Romans 8, Paul is clear about the fact that it's not only his son. Look at the text. It's very clear in, in the English and in the original. His own son. Why does he say his own son? Well, that's relevant because he's been talking about lots of sons and lots of daughters. Remember, look back at verse uh, uh, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's a lot of sons. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption, adopted sons, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He is our Father. We are his sons and daughters by adoption. He's already noted in the chapter that there are tons of children that God has spiritually birthed through the gospel. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, here it is again, children of God. And if children, heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. And then that great comparison, that great context that puts all the rest of the chapter into, into focus. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the chapter's already said there's lots of sons, lots of daughters, lots of children. This is different. He did not spare not the adopted sons, his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave, say with me, his only begotten son. That's the extent of his love. You have to pause and see the depth of that love for us that God exhibited by even suspending his love for his son. You say, what do you mean suspending? Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Love was redefined there as a, as a time of crucifixion, execution, and forsaking. We'll come back to that in a moment. There's another incredible verb here. But delivered him over for us all. Us all, by the way, that's believers in the context. It doesn't mean every person. This is not teaching universalism. The verb here is astonishing. God delivered his own son. Paradidomai. Now, it's an important word to know. I did some research on this, this word this week, and it is used several times in the New Testament. But um, my Logos program will actually do a search where you can tell how many, it, when, you, when you look at the verb, it will tell you how many times it's used with a certain person, how many times it's associated with a person. This was interesting when I 
popped in the results, or I saw the results from popping in the data. This word is used more times associated with one person than any other person in the New Testament. And the word it's associated with, the person it's associated with most is Judas. It's the exact same word that's used when it said Judas betrayed Jesus. He turned him over. He delivered him. It's not to say that the father betrayed the son. Rather, the the father was an active agent in the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, how do you answer the question? Who crucified Jesus? Who was responsible for the death of the son of God? Was it Judas? Well, you gotta say yes at some level. Was it the, uh, the disciples' inattentiveness? Some people would say that. I can see that. Was it the uh, chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees? Say that. The Bible says that. Was it the Jews in general? Acts 2 says that. Was it the Gentiles? The Bible says that. Was it your sin and my sin? Yes, the Bible says that. But here we find a different answer. He who did not spare his own son, God is still the object, the subject rather, But he, God, delivered him over for us all. This should have a direct echo in your mind of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of, do you remember what it says? God, smitten by God, struck by God. He was pierced through. This, the uh, context there says that God is still the subject. He was pierced through by God for our transgressions. He was crushed by God for our iniquities. And then if you go down to verse 10, it pleased the Lord to crush him. That's the word God delivered Jesus over. Judas thought he was turning Jesus over to be crucified. No, no. He was only the human means. God, the Father, did not spare his son. He delivered him over for execution. The rhetorical question here is employed by Paul as an argument from the greater to the lesser. He does this several times in the book of Romans. He does it several times in his writings. It's to make a big point, and if the big point is made, then the smaller point would follow. He's done a great thing in giving up his son. How can he not do lesser things by giving us all things? First of all, notice that the greatest thing, the greater thing is the giving up of his son. Paul says that was the greater thing. That is exactly the biggest thing that God has done or could do. He did not spare his own Son, if he didn't do that, how will he not freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his son, if he gave his son up for us, if he did the greater act, how can he not do the lesser blessings for us? Let's say just for a moment that you have a very wealthy friend. This is a good friend. You're gonna find out in a minute. This is a very good friend. And your friend wants to bless you, and so he comes over to your house, and he says, listen, I mean, think about you. you. You've been on my mind. I just want to bless you. So I want you to think, pick out any car you want. 
You can go anywhere in the Kansas City area, pick out any car you want, and whatever car you want, we're going to give you the top model of that car, the luxury edition of it, the limited edition. We're going to go buy you that car. You're overwhelmed. You can't believe it. You can't sleep all night thinking about it. You're looking at the internet, looking at colors and leather, and of course you're going to choose leather, right? And uh, all the, the accoutrements you get to your car, and you get up the next morning, he sure enough shows up, picks you up, takes you down to the dealership, says, pick anything out. Uh, the salesman's very happy to see you. Um, he pays full price, pays, pays for the whole thing. It is your car in your name. He gives you the key. He pays the taxes for you. It's all done. And you drive off. It's the middle of summer. In Kansas City, it's hot and it's humid. You're just a few miles down the road and you call your friend back up and you say, listen, I don't know how to ask this, but is it, it's really hot. Is it okay? Is it okay if I turn on the air conditioner? I mean, that's silly, isn't it? What do you think he's gonna say? No, I gave you the car, but you may not use the air conditioner in the summer or the heater in the winter. The point is, if he gave you the car, do you not think you're going to get everything that comes with it? That's the point Paul is making here. If he's not spared his own son to give you redemption, what do you think? He's just going to leave you hanging? Robert Mounts writes this. Since God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to death for us, Will he not along with this gracious gift also lavish upon us everything else he has to give? The argument is from the greater to the lesser. A God who sacrificed his own son on our behalf will certainly not withhold that which by comparison is merely trivial. This immeasurable greatness of God and God's love is seen in the infinite nature of his sacrifice on our behalf. God is by nature a giving God. End quote. Now we have to be careful here. I hate to even address this, but I've heard this view, verse abused by some people who would, uh, maybe in the health and wealth um, uh, camp, who would say, see, God will give you everything. And they supply everything you want, which is not in there. Supply you everything. If you have enough faith, you can get it. If you're holy enough, you can have it. That's not what's going on here. How do we know that? Look at what the text says. How will he, the Father, not also with him freely give us all things? Let's go back to our analogy, as broken as it is. If your friend gives you the car and with the car gives you everything in it, he didn't say, I'm giving you a house or a motorboat. With the car, you have everything. That's what's going on here. With him, with Christ, he freely gives us all things. Our greatest desires, the more we mature, are all Christian desires. And we misread Psalm 37 so often. Remember Psalm 37? Trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you think, well, I have a desire for a Ferrari. If I trust in him, I'll probably get it. That doesn't, that's not what it means. Trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning, he will take desires and put them in your heart so you have new and fresh and godly desires. He gives you new desires. How will he not also freely give us all things with him, along with him, in the car? The key phrase, if you underline things in your Bible, it's with him, with him. How do we know that this isn't everything health and wealth? Well, look down at the context, verse 36. This is in the same paragraph. 
just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that sound like he gives us all things we want for comfort and health and wealth? No. So what does he give us? What does he give us? I think Peter helps us out with this. In 2 Peter 1, verses 2 to 3, listen really carefully. Peter says, grace and peace, God's gift to you and God's assurance, in other words, be multiplied to you in, here it is, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace come to us from knowledge we get about God and Jesus. There's only one place that resides. That's, this is the read your Bible verse. Verse three, seeing, listen to this, that his divine power has granted to us everything. Now we get a descriptor pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you see that? See the connection there? With him, he will freely give us all things. Peter says that all things is related to life and godliness. Everything we need to live a godly life, everything we need to be holy, everything we need to be like Jesus. To experience the fullness of our salvation is to know and love Jesus more. Can we go back to the fourth grade Sunday school class just for a moment? You cannot, you will not grow in your affections for Christ, your love for God, your understanding of theology if you don't read your Bible. It's that simple. Peter says it comes to us, the, what we get with him comes to us through the true knowledge of God in Christ. There's only one place you can find that out and that's God's word. Since God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, we most certainly have all things with him. Paul gives us some of those descriptions of all things in this immediate context. Because he didn't spare his own son, all things work together for our good. Because he did not spare his son, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Because he did not spare his son, we'll be glorified. Because he did not spare his son, no one can successfully be against us. Because he did not spare his son, no charge will stick against God's elect. Because he did not spare his son, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So then in tribulation, distress, and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, Paul says, because of that, we are more than conquerors. We win. We know the end. He's for us, not against us. Which climaxes in what you know at the end of the chapter. So then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate that. He didn't spare a son. He's for us. We should look at these things and say, what do we say? How, how do we respond? My estimation of the greatest problem you and I face as believers in 2015 is to begin or continue or be tricked into 
deceived into understanding our Christian faith as behavior modification, doing better, trying harder, a code of ethics, a different way of living than our neighbors, than with him receiving all things, than our focus being on Christ, on the living, resurrected Savior. It's interesting to me who, um, look at the third verse 34. Paul can't even talk about him in the past tense. Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. He wants to make sure that we know. Crucifixion, yes, but he also rose from the dead. The implications that are staggering. He is alive right now somewhere doing something. And we find out in this passage, we'll find out next week that he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's caring for us before the throne. That makes sense why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I came among you and I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. My message was him. He told the Colossians in 128, we proclaim him. I like the, how the King James uh, gets the, the pronoun in the right place. Him, we proclaim. His message was him. And then Colossians 3, 1 to 4, you know it well. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. We want to think about eternal things because that's the abode of Christ and he's the one we think most about. So it draws us like a magnet into that realm. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things in the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now here it is. You ready to be convicted? When Christ... Who is our what? Life. When he's revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Is Christ our life? I pray constantly for our church. Our elders pray for you name by name. And I gotta confess to you that the, the prayer that I find myself uttering most, and it, I, I pray it for myself too, is that we would be so Christ-centered that people would think that we have this obsessive, compulsive order, not disorder, that we can only talk about and think about Christ because of our love for him. Is he such an object of our imagination, worship, thinking, Meditation that we can't but talk about him. Is Mission Road about him? Because all the blessings and perspective we want comes freely, what did Paul say? With him. It comes with him. He gives us all things with him, in him, by him, through him. And if you're an unbeliever, how could you say no to that? Why would you say no? What kind of fool would say no to this kind of God exhibiting this kind of favor and grace to wicked enemy sinners? And if you're a believer, if you're a brother or sister, you have to look at this and just say, wow, wow. He's got it covered. It's okay. We know that death is a possibility because of our faith. And still glorification awaits us.
For the Christian, death is not the great enemy. It's the hallway to heaven. Father loved the Son so much he gave him up to be crucified. A believer loves the Son so much that we give up our lives to be crucified. I hope that's your disposition toward the Lord. We're just wading into this passage. There's even more to come in these final questions. Father, give us a fresh perspective and understanding of our great and living Savior. Just humbled. Just humbled that you would love us and extend to us whom you foreknew, whom you predestined, whom you called and justified and will glorify that you didn't spare your son, your own son whom you love. Abraham was willing to offer, but you saved Isaac. And there was no one who came to the rescue of your son. Melt our hearts with worship and adoration for our wonderful, merciful Savior. Amen.